This Week in Startups is brought to you by Dell's precision and XPS product lines can bring your vision to life. They are masterfully crafted from premium materials like machined aluminum and carbon fiber. You can also sign up for a free IT consultation at launch.co slash Dell. Squarespace. Turn your idea into a new website. Go to squarespace.com slash twist for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code twist to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. And Tiny. Want to sell your wonderful internet business? Tiny partners with founders to give them quick, straightforward exits that protect their team and culture. They'll make an offer within a week, close the deal within a month, and keep your business operating for the long term. Get in touch at tinycapital.com slash this week, and they'll let you know within a couple of days. Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of This Week in Startups. Wanted to start with a couple of quick news hits about Amazon uh, in talks to acquire MGM, AT&T spinning off WarnerMedia and merging it with Discovery, uh, as well as uh, an interview I did with, wait for it, yes, hell has frozen over, Tel Lorenz of the New York Times joins us today on the podcast. To get started, uh, looking at Amazon is in talks to acquire MGM. MGM is a movie studio that has reportedly been on the market for seven to $10 billion. And their IP isn't Disney level. It's not Marvel level. It's certainly not Star Wars, but it's not bad. They own the James Bond franchise. That's kind of the big piece here. And the James franchise, the James Bond franchise, you could see be, being worth, you know, half of this price in my mind. If Star Wars, Marvel, and Pixar are all worth, you know, billions of dollars, why wouldn't James Bond? You could see James Bond over the next 50 years producing a movie every two years, 25 movies, doing a billion dollars each. That's $25 billion in box office. Completely possible. Uh, They also own uh, The Handmaid's Tale, which is doing fantastic on Hulu. They own the Rocky franchise, which has been rebooted. I'm not sure that's got huge legs. Stargate. Very much beloved multi-franchise TV show, RoboCop, Legally Blonde, Shark Tank, and Survivor. Now, the MGM Film Library includes over 4,000 titles, uh, those are movies, and 17,000 television episodes. If you split the price, you know, and you made it uh, half and half, you know, maybe uh, they're paying um, 4,000 titles, $4 billion, a million dollars per movie. That seems pretty reasonable. Some of those movies will never make a million. Some will make many more than a million. So they've got a huge catalog of films. They also have a number of production and distribution companies, and they have the content network Epics. This would give Amazon access to just a huge library that they could make part of Amazon Prime Video, uh, and they could license it to other people. And it starts to give them an IP catalog that is nowhere near Disney+, Plus, but it's kind of puts them on Netflix level, doesn't it? So this is a, a major move. I can't believe that, uh, you know, somebody like Netflix didn't make it given their market cap. Really strange, but looks like Amazon's going to win it. You never know somebody could come in uh, and buy it. I don't know if Disney is going to be allowed to keep buying every single movie studio without triggering some kind of antitrust. Uh, but this is uh, a big part of Amazon's real push into video. If you don't know, in the Q1 2020 earnings uh, report that just came out, uh, Prime Video is now 10 years old and over 175 million Prime members have streamed shows and movies in the past year, I'm quoting, and streaming hours are up more than 70% year over year. Obviously, pandemic played a part there. Um, And they uh, received 
a record 12 Academy Award nominations and two wins. There are now over 200 million Prime members worldwide, and 175 million of them have used Amazon Prime. So that's really interesting. If you're a Prime member, you know this because they keep upselling you on and they keep telling you about it. Netflix, of course, has 208 million subscribers. So these things are not analogous. I don't think 175 million people who used Amazon Prime Video would have paid for it. Maybe 10% would have. Uh, but it does mean uh, that there is something here worth pursuing. Netflix is 14 bucks a month for the standard. They have like a $9 and $18 option. But Disney Plus is the real story here. Disney is at 103 million members paying 80 bucks a year, $8 a month, uh, including myself. So uh, Amazon is uh, really competitive on Netflix and Disney Plus because it's part of a bundle, right? And the bundling is what we're seeing occur more and more often. You may have noticed Apple is now bundling Apple News, iCloud, uh, Apple Arcade, Apple Music in the sort of Apple Prime, as I called it on CNBC about five years ago. So this basically means if you're a subscription service, man, you've got to compete with the Amazon Prime offering, which is more than just movies, the Apple Prime, which is cloud games, news, and videos and music. Uh, so this is uh, a super uh, big win. And uh, Ben Thompson from Stratechery. Uh, says Amazon has to work to win and retain customers on a continual basis, ideally to its prime subscription service and bundling differentiated content is a great way to do that. So stating the obvious there, uh, Ben, but it is true. This is a way to differentiate if they own James Bond, that's a nice catalog. Uh, and, and some of the other ones are as well. Um, and I think these mega bundles um, are really going to challenge Netflix. And Netflix. Now, if you force people to pick Amazon Prime, Netflix, or Disney, and they can only pick two. Which two would you pick? I actually think, oh, and Hulu, I put into that. Uh, if I had to pick, if I had to drop only one, I might actually drop Netflix at this point. I, I'm in love with Hulu, the interface, the live stuff. My kids are not going to let us get rid of Disney Plus, uh, and I have no way I'm getting rid of Amazon Prime. So if you put those four together, Netflix is in fourth place for me, and that says something. In related news, AT&T is spinning off WarnerMedia and merging it with Discovery and offloading about $40 billion in debt. This was first reported in Bloomberg. And AT&T confirmed it's going to spin out WarnerMedia business and merge it into Discovery. This is going to create an entertainment company that owns HBO, HBO Max. I'm not sure exactly what the difference is there. CNN and all the Discovery channels, Discovery, HGTV, and Animal Planet. A lot of those channels do really good business because if you do a nature series on orcas that plays around the world everybody is interested in killer whales sharks dolphins whatever it is it's one of the great things about their content you don't have to localize it you need only change the language it's not like where you do mtv the real world in the united states and that's going to be very different when you license it to japan or australia and you got to make a totally new show so obviously discovery is going to combine hbo max with discovery plus and create another streaming product to compete with Netflix, Prime Video, Disney Plus, Apple TV, Peacock, Paramount, and all the other things that are out there. We're all going to wind up subscribing to four or five of these. And uh, this deal comes just three years after AT&T acquired Time Warner uh, and subsequently rebranded it, rebranded it Warner Media. So why now, just three years after purchasing Time Warner, uh, most people seem to think it's the debt just you know, the AT&T is carrying $169 billion in debt and needs to invest in its wireless business. They obviously have competition coming from Starlink. You obviously have competition 
uh, in the 5G space from all any number of competitors, and it's just too hard to run you know, a carrier and content. We saw the same thing happen recently. Uh, Verizon is selling off their content business. In that case, it's an online business, not a movie business. But this idea that you're going to own the plumbing and you're going to own the content seems to be too much for one management team or Wall Street to be able to digest. Obviously, Google got rid of uh, Google Fiber. They couldn't be in the search and the online business and figure out how to make uh, a business around plumbing and pipes work as well. So uh, AT&T is going to give $40 billion of that debt to Discovery. And here's the quote from David Zaslov, um, who has been running Discovery from 2007 and just renewed his contract into 2027. It's not just that we're better together in the media side, but we're probably the best media company in the world with the greatest IP, the most iconic IP, Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, Sex and the City, Entourage, Game of Thrones, and this idea of a full global IP company. It's not true, but it's... Uh, you know, maybe he's in the top four. Uh, I would definitely not say that this combination is better than what Disney owns, not by a long shot. Uh, so definitely in the top three, but definitely not number one. Nice try. <laughs> Finally, uh, quick uh, legal story. Dapper Labs is facing a class action lawsuit. Although I'd say this isn't a substantial one, but it's an interesting one. Uh, this was reported by Coindesk. Um, the CEO, uh, Roham Gary Goslu, who was on episode 1197 back in April, um, he runs Dapper Labs. That's the company that made the Flow blockchain, and they do NBA Top Shot, uh, which has been sued at, by a plaintiff, a plaintiff being somebody who bought NFTs from Top Shot. And the legal work is being done by the Rosen Law Firm. Uh, they're also currently working on uh, lawsuits, class action lawsuits against Peloton and Volkswagen. And they've got 17 one star reviews on Google. I'm not sure if that's relevant or not. But they're a class action lawsuit. Uh, and I think they tend to make money by settling these uh, lawsuits. The suit alleges that the NBA top shot moments meet the definition of a security and should be registered as such. Does it? Are the people buying NBA top shots buying it because they want to own the LeBron James dunk? Or are they buying it because they want it to appreciate like Amazon stock? Interesting question. You would have to ask each of the individuals uh, what they're doing. The suit references the SEC's framework for investment contract analysis of digital assets, uh, which was published following the ICO wave. Now, in the ICO wave, the ICOs were white papers. There was no product there. So this seems very different to me. If somebody makes a white paper and you buy tokens and it's some future token, and the token isn't actually being used in the real world for some purpose, well, then maybe it does feel like it is a uh, security being sold in advance of an offering. Now, if there's utility to the token, and it's being used in some way, and NFTs are being used because people seem to love to own them for the collector's sake, and there is precedent to this, people buy baseball cards. But there's also the precedent that baseball cards can be resold for more. And obviously, people are not paying a million dollars for a Superman comic book or a million dollars for a little LeBron James rookie card, because they think they just want to look at it. If they just wanted to look at it, they could make, you know, a million copies for $10,000 and place them everywhere and give them out to every person they ever met in the rest of their life. So it's both. It's clearly both. Uh, people are getting both types of value, some appreciation and some enjoyment, just like a classic car, you could drive a million dollar classic car, that might be a little risky. Um, but certainly you could drive a $100,000 old, you know, uh, 1965 Corvette, 
you can get some value out of driving it. It takes you from point A to B, but it also is worth 100000 So uh, the main thesis is, and this is quoting, uh, NBA moments are securities because they constitute an investment of money in a common enterprise with a reasonable expectation of profits to be delivered from the efforts of others. Hmm. Really debatable. Interesting. In the dapper terms of service, uh, terms of use, dapper requires its users to agree that they in quotes, are using NFTs primarily as objects of play and not for investment or speculative purposes. That is also nonsense. Obviously, these things are being bought because people believe they're going to go up. Two things can be true at the same time. And what this means is our laws are antiquated and they need to change. Dapper also included a binding arbitration clause. So this shouldn't be settled in court, according to them. Um, this probably um, all arose because there is uh, a big money target on their back dapper just had a 7.5 billion dollar valuation raised 400 million and top shot has had 585 million in transactions so whenever you're successful the lawyers come out they look for an angle to sue the angle here is this is unclear and as i just described it two things can be true this could be uh and the people could be buying nfts because they want them to appreciate that's fairly obvious even if even if dapper says they're not and it could be that people are buying them because they enjoy owning them and they get some value from them, just like classic cars um and so you know in terms of advice there is nothing like success to bring out lawsuits if you become a billion dollar 10 billion or 100 billion dollar company the number of lawsuits will directly correlate with the valuation and the amount of money you raise because you are in fact a target okay let's get to my interview with tell lorenz enjoy Dell for Entrepreneurs is here to help you with all your hardware and software needs. Here are some of the exclusive benefits for Dell for Entrepreneurs members. Entrepreneurs get free expedited delivery, exclusive offers, and up to 6% back on rewards. You can finance your IT project with Dell Financial Services. How cool is that? Extend your runway by financing all of your equipment. You'll have a dedicated startup IT advisor to help you with any and all technical questions. And Dell has an incredible product line. You know that. Dell's line of XPS laptops and tablets were engineered with entrepreneurs in mind and they'll increase your productivity and were built for mobility. Now you can stay unplugged for longer because they have these incredibly long-lasting batteries. Of course, you know Dell is the world's number one monitor company, so you can pair that beautiful XPS machine with the perfect monitor to realize your vision. Dell's monitors elevate your creative vision with 4K, 8K, HDR, and my favorite, the curved monitors. They're just gorgeous. We just got a 227-inch setup for me with these ultra-sharp vertical monitors. They were actually delivered today. I am stoked. You know I love my Dell monitors. I talk about it all the time. So here's your call to action. The old CTA members of Dell for Entrepreneurs receive an additional 5% off selected Dell products, including that awesome xps line i keep talking about and they'll help you with any it project you may have go to launch.co slash down launch.co slash d-e-l-l and sign up for a free it consultation and that five percent off coupon okay let's get back to this amazing episode all right everybody next up on the program is taylor lorenz the queen of meme the social media reporter at the new york times it's uh, great to meet you taylor uh and um you've been writing for the new york times for i think three years now oh 2018 year 2019 oh that's it <laughs> all right well you made a lot of noise in a year and a half uh 33 articles uh already and uh got so much to talk about i thought i'd talk i'd start with um 
Instagram for kids and what your thoughts are on um, should this is this a horrible idea? And would you trust I, I don't know if you have kids or not. But do you have kids? No. Okay. So do you think parents should put kids under 13 on Instagram, knowing what you know about social media, seeing, you know, the wreckage that it causes politically, people's personal lives, eating disorders, people being groomed and targeted? What is your position on this? So I wrote an article actually when I was at the Atlantic a few years ago about what it's like for children the first time they realize they have an internet presence. And I interviewed a bunch of children under 10, basically about the first time that they Googled themselves. And it was really interesting. I talked to dozens of kids and a lot of them, I mean, the experience that most of them had is that they were very frustrated that their parents had basically been posting about them throughout their whole lives. Right. And so, you know, they get on Instagram at 13 and one of them's talking about, oh, I realized there's a hashtag for my name that my mom and family members had shared uh -huh. basically baby photos. Like, you know, it, there's a lot of, of kids lives that are already being put on the internet um yeah. classrooms camps you know they'll put photos up for sports teams like things like this so i think there's an increasing amount of like digital footprint for kids online um and 13 does seem like kind of an arbitrary age um i think i guess it's determined by like you know it's legal like copa stuff yeah. like um and I'm a little bit torn. I mean, obviously, it's horrible, right? Like the predatory nature of that, like you would think, why would you put kids on? But then at the same time, I kind of think of YouTube for kids, which I know has had its problems, but it's like, actually, it's a safer experience, right? It's a more closed experience. So I think if Instagram can build an app that allows children to kind of like, use, you know, follow what they like, or consume children's content, and it's a safer experience, that could be good. As I saw yesterday, Casey Newton, wrote up this report saying like 40% of kids under the age of 12 reported being on Facebook already um, mm. and Instagram. So I think kids are using these apps for adults already. Um, mm. But I, yeah. I, mean, I know, I, I know there's this notion of like, get kids offline, don't let them on these apps. And I, I get that. But um you know, I, I can't, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what the right answer is. Like I said, yeah. I don't have kids and I understand that I understand wanting to protect them. It's, it's a horrible, yeah. I mean, there's a, a lot of horrible stuff about Instagram, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's when you have kids and you just see what impact YouTube has on them versus just kids YouTube, it really is one's a whitelisted service where they cannot communicate. There are no comments. There is no social network. You know, for, for me, uh, you know, being a dad of three daughters, like, I would really, really be scared if there were comments on YouTube kids or, oh, yeah. you know, you could like people. I mean, it's just a recipe for kids being groomed and all kinds of gnarly stuff. So it's it's a hard yeah. note uh, for you me. You shouldn't have on messaging. That. Like you should not be letting like eight-year-olds message people on the internet. Like yeah. that's I mean, a horrible idea. What My feeling is like maybe 15 or 16 is the right age for a phone. When you're going to communicate with people and all the parents I've talked to and my kids have iPads, but it's always in the room with a parent or with a caregiver, you know, at the kitchen table using it with specific apps. Like I think the app store um, has something called arcade Apple and it's like no ads, no mana, no like targeting kids or gamifying them. It just makes it just a little bit less um, gnarly. Jake Paul, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know all these influencers, so I, I need to like get educated on them. Jake Paul is starting a venture firm. 
he again. seems like again he seems like a complete <laughs> moron to me and his brother as well do you, what are your what's your take on the these two and like should anybody be engaging with them i mean we this overlaps in both of our disciplines me as an investor and, and you as a a commentator on this the, the these folks specifically are horrible humans well, uh, from I think what I can Logan, tell, uh, let's let's leave Logan out of it because I think Logan oh. has kind of like had a little bit of a redemption. Like I think he's done some stupid stuff, but like overall, I think yeah. like you know, I'm a little bit more forgiving of him because he seems to have really like taken responsibility for the way that he screwed up by yeah. you know, filming a dead body. So I think he's yeah, he filmed um, in a Japanese forest where people go to commit suicide. He filmed a dead a person who had committed suicide is just incredibly callous, classless, and yeah, uh, disturbing. It was horrible. I, I, you know, he apologized. He did. You know, I think he's tried to make amends. And like, I think the past few years, he's kind of just been doing his thing. He has his podcast. Like, he's. I'm not like concerned about him. I guess like yeah. I don't. He doesn't come up as much for me. Jake has kind of taken the opposite approach. For like, he's leaned into controversy, and he's done a lot of like really screwed up um, things. I mean, he's been accused of multiple by multiple women of sexual assault um yeah. you know i recently did a story about this house that he started which kind of became the blueprint for a lot of these club houses where he had kids as young as 14 living there and he was basically exploiting them for profit what? in various ways yeah so like and by the way jake has tried a lot of different things like jake i mean jake famously had this like app that he tried to launch a social network called locker room where like men and women were separate and He's, this is his, you know, he's tried venture firms before. He had TGZ Capital, his former VC fund. None of it's ever worked out. As somebody said, like, Jake Paul is most successful at promoting Jake Paul. Like, mm. like he's one of those people that's just, like, controversial. He lives for the controversy, but in, like, a really toxic way. Um, yeah. So I was really, I was really interested to see, like, big name investors backing his latest rolling fund only because none of his previous ventures have been successful. Um yeah, I mean, there is an argument, I think, that these influencers have very large audiences, and perhaps that could act as distribution oh, yeah. for, you know, what the fund invests in, in the same way that when I have people on this podcast, it, you know, gets 10,000 people or 1,000 people to try an app. So, that, you know, that is reasonable. Oh, of course. Yeah. I just think, like, you know, there's millions of influencers out there, and there's tons of people way more relevant than Jake Paul. Yeah. And why are you kind of choosing this guy? Like, I do think it sends a message, um, especially to other creators, especially women creators, you know, yeah. some of which. What is that message? I think the message is that, like, this is the person that we're going to stand behind, right? Like, mm -hmm. this is the type we, you know, for these investors that are trying to rebrand themselves as these, like, stewards of the creator economy, who, mm -hmm. which creators they align themselves with, I think, says a message about how they envision that world. And Jake is very emblematic of this, um, you know, exploitative era of the creator economy where there were no protections where these kids were being taken advantage of. Jake mm. famously had, you know, his talent sign these contracts where he was entitled to like 20% of their income for years, mm. even if they quit his group. Um, it yeah, just, I, it's yeah. such a it's so radioactive that I think that, you know, these seem to be a, a, a number of these really big YouTubers specifically seem to be pretty dopey and they do stupid things. And adding stupid to capital markets and to companies where people work, this is really dumb because the people who work at that company 
then get judged on the stupidest thing, you know, some dopey kid like Jake Paul does. And we don't even have to, this is no longer a hypothetical because I, I found out about this David Dobrik character because I saw him uh, driving like a Model X Tesla and like getting air on the streets. I don't know if you saw that video. And I immediately said, um, this is unbelievably dangerous. Like, what if they spun out of control and went into those, you know, that row of houses there and somebody's in the front porch or somebody walks out their door, you could kill somebody. I mean, young people do stupid stuff. But they're doing it on YouTube to make money. And yeah. that to me seems to be that makes YouTube culpable. Am I Ooh. you agree with me on that? Like they're culpable if they're monetizing Dobrik's content they are his partner and they're endorsing him and they're promoting him. Therefore, they are responsible for his behavior on the platform. I, th I think, yeah, I think if they're in their premium partnership, you know, like, which is like the main thing that, you, that YouTube has over these big creators is like giving them access to the premium ads. And so the, the big punishment that a lot of them have gotten when they do something bad is like, oh, you're kicked out of our Google, you know, preferred network. So yeah, I do think it's on YouTube. But at the same time, David Dobrik is so much bigger than YouTube. I mean, he's huge on so many platforms. And I think it's up to investors to do the due diligence. I mean, there were other people that passed on that round because they looked at some of his videos and were like, okay, this is a liability. Um, spe speaking specifically of Dispo, which Dispo, is this yeah, invite only photo sharing app, which I downloaded and I guess I downloaded the public one, not the test flight. What? Why was this app so hot? Is it good? Well, it, it is an interesting product. It's it's kind of like mimicking the the experience of using a disposable camera. Um, so you kind of take photos and, and it develops the next day. The main reason people wanted to kind of be like people downloaded it because David was involved in it. It was David's project. And and when you have a fan base of thirty million people that are captive, they will download your app. Like you said, it's distribution. Um, but obviously, if you get into controversy, you get canceled or whatever, suddenly, like you said, all of these hardworking people that are in product and engineering and everything that did a lot of work on this app are tied to that brand. Yeah. It's like a celebrity. I mean, right? Like, same thing if you work for a celebrity startup, right? Like, right. And, and it, it was just a controversy that he may have actually stole the artwork for it, which I'm not sure if that actually came out. But um, my friend Alexis Ohanian backed it. And Dave has left the company now and, you know, just what a crazy disaster uh, for everybody. But I mean, Dobrik's problems are now just absolutely insane. He has um, done stunts that one of the stunts, I saw the swinging thing. Explain to mm -hmm. me like. He swung the, the, his friend Jeff off a of backhoe. It's hard to describe because it's, it's weird. They were in Lake Tahoe, I believe it was, where they had this backhoe. Um, where they were like swinging off of it, like the yeah. arm of it for fun around in a lake. And mm. he, David was being crazy, as David always does, push and push and push for the views. You have to be crazier. And he basically swung in a way that his friend smashed into the side of the, of the backhoe and, and mm. you know, fractured. His whole his, face. Yeah. And yeah. that was covered up. And I mean, what a disaster. The, these stunt YouTubes, I, I remember talking to Susan Wojcicki about it and I, I called her out on Twitter. I was like, you should not allow people doing these stunts on YouTube. Their accounts should be instantly turned off if they do a stunt that's dangerous. Because people were hanging off buildings and a number of them fell off. It's so gnarly that it just, I mean, I, I hate to be cynical, but I don't think YouTube cares all that much about this. I mean, 
I think if they cared, they would have not like rewarded these people with millions and millions of followers. Um, unfortunately, we're in just, agreement on that. Yeah, yeah, it's like the nature of the internet. People will always be more and more outrageous um, for for views, but it's up to YouTube to say, look, even if you're allowing them to continue on the platform, don't put them in your preferred ad network. Don't do marketing for them, right? Like, don't put them in your ad campaign and in your end of your rewind video. Like, maybe those shouldn't be the people that you should highlight. I love Squarespace. Squarespace is such a fantastic company. The founder, Anthony, is amazing. And if you want to create a blog or publish content, promote your business or a special project of some type, maybe you want to sell a product online, you can do that all with Squarespace and they have beautiful templates. You don't have to hire a designer. You go to the template library and you pick something stunning and it works on your iPhone and iPad and an Android phone and a weird size phone, browsers, big screen monitors, all those beautiful designs and templates are responsible responsive and gorgeous and they're done by world-class designers and that you get to draft after all of this incredible work including they added powerful e-commerce functionality including seo something you usually have to hire a contractor for that's all built in and you get free secure 24-hour, seven-day-a-week award-winning customer support. And you know what? I got really frustrated during this pandemic. I was trying to figure out what do I do? How do I get companies funded? I'm going to start this remote demo day.com. I told my team, make me a beautiful website. When I say beautiful website, they think Squarespace. It took longer to write the copy than to make a beautiful website. I'll be totally honest. And you know who was responsible for writing the copy? Me. So I was slowing the team down. You can get a free trial of Squarespace by going to squarespace.com slash twist. And when you're ready to launch, just use that offer code twist, T-W-I-S-T, so they know I sent you and you get another 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Congratulations to the team over there on their great success. Congratulations on making the best product in the business. And thank you for your support of This Week in Startups for years. I mean, it really does mean a lot to me. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. Let, let's move over to Clubhouse, our favorite <laughs> platform. Uh, it's one of the most mind-blowing valuations I've ever seen in my career. I've been, was a journalist, editor, CEO, and now investor. So I've been at this since the 90s. And I have never seen something become worth this much money uh, so quickly, all from the same venture firm, three investments in a row uh, from 100 million to 4 billion in, I don't know, 18 months. Uh, and now it's dying, it seems. W what are your thoughts on the absolute collapse in the number of downloads? And do you think it recovers? Well, I think Clubhouse is a, is a groundbreaking format the way that Stories was a groundbreaking format for Snapchat. Hmm. And I think the hard thing, um, and I think investors learn this after Snapchat, right, is like, even if you if, even if you pioneer this new format, the second that all of these other big players come and clone it and, and it kind of gets more widely adopted, you're going to lose that competitive edge. And you have to maintain some sort of like you have to really strong community or you have to have something. Um, I, I don't think it's just like Twitter launching spaces that's made Clubhouse downloads drop. I think also it was perfectly positioned during the pandemic. And obviously people are going back outside now. They don't want to sit on these rooms. I think also the discovery in the app is just bad like you you know like tiktok is a, a case in point right like part of the reason tiktok is so successful is they just nailed discovery like you know you're going to see something entertaining when you open the app clubhouse i mean i think their recommendations case in point their suggested follower recommendations i was with a bunch of like teenage 17 to 19 year old kids in atlanta recently at these influencers they were all joking about these random men that they followed on Clubhouse. And they're like, yeah, you have to follow these people to get on the app. It's so funny. Haha, ha, who are these people? And I was like, oh, show me. And it's, <laughs> it's just like 
a bunch of Andreessen Horowitz partners. And it's like, that's a that's a bad user experience. Like you should yeah. have more dynamic recommendations. You should surface more interesting rooms. Otherwise, I think people are going to not see the benefit of it. Obviously, they have moderation issues. I've spoken a ton about that too. But I don't, I don't think that's why they're dying. I think they're dying because people are getting outside more. But but I don't think it's going away. I, I don't know. People are like, oh, it's going to be dead. And da, 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 da. I, I don't know. Well, I think it can't die if they have, you know, whatever, two or three hundred million dollars in the bank. They can yeah. they can they can take a 10 <laughs> year view of building this. I do think there is and I'm curious your thoughts on this. You know, obviously, you and I were early adopters there. And I just was getting you know, a 1000 people 1500 people pretty regularly. And you know, I'm good at audio. So I was like, okay, this is interesting. But then I was just at some point, I was like, wait a second, my, my podcast makes millions of dollars a year. Why am I on this platform, giving away my content for free? And I just decided this is dumb. I'm just going to do more podcasts. <laughs> if I'm going to do more time, it, it, there's no monetization here. And then the the amount that the I actually took offense to the fact that they put all of these entries and Horowitz people on the suggested user list. It, Basically, I think it's a, the worst strategic decision I've ever seen by a founder. You gave one group of investors this massive edge. And so when they, you know, join, uh, when anybody else joins Clubhouse, you're like, oh, well, they have millions of followers. There's no way for me to compete on this platform for attention. So I'm out, which was also, kind of the decision people, I made. Yeah, yeah, those people are not using the platform well. Like those uh, people, like no offense to these investors, truly, I know I have so much beef with them, but like. It's, it's, I it's have like beef with A16Z too. So you and I can go on a, <laughs> on a whole tirade. Well, this is where like, you and I might have common ground. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I don't know. It's whatever. It's, it's like, but I think that like you really need, I mean, this is like how I've always felt with creators. And, and this was a mistake, by the way, that the founders of Vine, same mistake they made. Like Dom and them and, and Russ, like they really wanted it to be this, like they, they had a vision of the creators that they wanted. They wanted mm. these, these certain types of users. They didn't want these comedy people, but it's like everyone wanted to engage with those comedy people and they, they kind of resisted promoting them for so long that it hurt them. The thing is you want to embrace those power users early. They embraced like the most, they embraced like their investor. It's like, why are you, no one wants to listen. No offense. No one wants to listen to investors. Yeah. They want to listen well, to like I mean, weird, crazy. There's, some people there do, are but 5 million people who do or 10 million sure. <laughs> who really want to, but not a hundred million, right? Like, it's not the wider audience. No, and maybe like one or two, but I think it's about like identifying the native talent. Like who mm -hmm. is the who's creating the most engaging rooms and also making those those suggestions more dynamic, not just having this set list that everyone follows. Like Yeah. You We're know. getting into the weeds here, but yeah. um how they handled blocking people, I think was very interesting. Mm -hmm. And you uh I think got caught up in it. Um <laughs> pretty pretty deeply explain how the blocking system works there and uh why you um objected to it so fervently well i just thought it was poorly poorly thought out i mean i think like having an effective block i love blocking like i'll block i you know i think yeah, blocking is an essential yes. <laughs> tool for for moderating your own experience i think the problem with the way that blocking was was implemented with clubhouse is it affect it allows you to dictate other people's experiences on the app so you had especially somebody like power users right like mark andreessen loves blocking people more power yeah. to him right that's his thing that's great i've he been blocked and unblocked and followed by mark no less than a hundred times in the last five years like I, I don't know i can't get any rhyme or reason to it i'm like mark which is it 
<laughs> I know it's whatever, but I, I mean, I think, look, like users should be able to do that. Like that's fine. That, that should dictate your experience, but blocking should not dictate somebody else's experience of the app. So mm-hmm. I think like the problem with the way that Clubhouse implemented it is it allowed people that had big audiences. If you block somebody and they are go on stage in a room, you're kicked out. Like you can't be in that room anymore. And so if you're blocked by big influential people, and I'm not just talking about the investors, but like big celebrities, Tiffany Haddish, for instance, like you're suddenly cut off from a huge portion of the app. And that's just the bad user experience. Like, mm. Is there for, a better experience? Yeah. I mean, I think that there's ways to implement blocking in audio i i think that like maybe like allowing you to know if somebody that you've blocked is joining the room like muting them maybe you don't hear their audio like i i mean i'm not a designer but there are many product designers that did like teardowns and interesting things they also made this weird check mark where they were exposing this data of like if a lot of people blocked you you get this like badge on your profile yes that that was specifically for the people i went after which were these multi-level marketing coaches who I just absolutely demolished. They all threatened to sue me. No letter showed up. So uh, go figure. I, that. I was glad you're going. I mean, it's like, I think anytime you have a social app, the MLM people will be on it. They're like, oh, the, they're the like cockroaches of the internet. Like they're just, you can't get rid of them. Um, but it's whack-a-mole for sure. Yeah. Um, I would say though, like, exposing like it's useful to know right like as a company you want to know who's blocking and who's getting a lot of Mm. blocks that that should inform maybe their distribution in the hallway or something but that's not data that you want to expose to the users because it's Mm. it's sort of a default negative thing and you probably saw with the mlm i mean jason you had a check mark too like when i look yeah i'm sure the mlm folks came after me yeah exactly so it just means you have a mob that can go after another person basically basically Um, so so Let's talk about Substack for a second because yeah. it relates to Clubhouse. There is a um, explicit strategy at Andreessen Horowitz to take on uh, mainstream media. Uh, you have been uh, targeted specifically by them, uh, as has the New York Times. They have a lot of gripes. But putting that aside, what do you think about this um, giving writers ginormous advances to move to Substack or – off to regularly contribute content and basically buying the rights to you know some of the bigger names you think this is a vindictive strategy what do you hear on the back channel from other journalists do they feel like this is great for them because they can double their triple their salary and become independent and set their own schedule or do they think it's kind of nefarious that Andreessen is using their billions of dollars to fund companies to then gut media companies and compete with them so I can't speak for other journalists, but I mean, I'll sort of share my thoughts. Well, on I'm it. just saying like on the back channel, like certainly right. you've been involved. The tea, in, I get it. Yeah, get the tea. It. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what you guys so, say. I, I stand you, Taylor. The tea, whatever. Um, yeah. No, I mean, so here's the thing. I, I think that it's a very good thing. I mean, if you if you think about the last year, right, like 16,000 reporters have lost their job recently. Yep. Um that is a huge amount of talent and writing and and people, and, the, and the, not to mention all of the people that never had reporting jobs, right? That are fascinating, interesting people and and want to build, um, you know, new, their own newsletters. I, I think it's great, and I think that Substack offering these advances up front is a great way to basically like help these people have a little bit of security where they can make the leap to go full time. I think if if media companies are losing people to Substack, that's on the media companies, like. Media companies are losing those people to Substack because they're not providing a, f- a good financial reward for staying there, right? Like if you can make 10 times more money on Substack, why wouldn't you do that? That's a positive right. thing. That should encourage media companies to 
um, I don't know, maybe value top writers more, pay them more, give them more of a split, right? If they do an in-house newsletter, cut them in on the deal. We saw this with podcasts where like a lot of journalists were starting their own podcasts. And so media companies, some of them, not New York Times, but some, well, I don't know, New York Times might, but well, New York Times did. I mean, you had uh, Wesley and, uh, oh, and Jenna, and Jenna yeah. on Still Processing, which I love that podcast because yeah. for me, that's just like, you know, white guy in Silicon Valley just automatically levels up in terms of black culture. Like, <laughs> talk about like, just absolutely getting caught up on stuff like I, like Atlanta and, you know, Issa Rae. Like, I, I just, I, these things were on the periphery of discussions, but they just really helped me highlight it. And uh, Wesley had, I think he was working on the Ringer Network. So I guess they, they brought him home. Um, and yeah. now the New York Times is actually... Um, according to reports from journalists uh, in the New York Times, which is getting kind of meta here, got a little freaked out about this. And then they put uh, the former get, uh, Gawker editor, um, Corey Sika, he's my boss. Corey, he's now running New York Times version of Substack or newsletters. So. Whatever it will be. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I think that the thing that's funny with these media organizations is I think that they keep taking this lesson of like, oh, people are leaving for Substack. That means they want to do newsletters. It's like, no, the reason people are leaving is for financial independence. And because of all of this stuff that you get with that, it's the freedom. It's it's not mm. about the format as much. And I think um, I, I think that's a good thing. I mean, I think what Substack has done in terms of giving people a platform is, is, is a, like, it's competition, right? So you're a capitalist, I believe, or you're a socialist. Where do you where do you stand on the oh, spectrum? Oh, I can't you're, talk about politics. <laughs> oh, you're not allowed to talk about politics. No, I mean, no. that's a weird thing. As a, I mean, talk about <laughs> like you mentioned freedom. You know, you're not allowed to talk on this podcast about your politics when fairly obvious to me from your Twitter what your politics are. Um, you're certainly left leaning. Who's to say, Jason? Who's to say? I think. I mean, you say on your Twitter. (laughs) I definitely would never say I'm left or right. But I think. I mean, look, like I think we know you didn't vote for Trump. (laughs) 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 Going out on a limb here. (laughs) Uh, Are you a secret forever Trumper? (laughs) (laughs) Break some news here. I don't tweet about Trump. The only time I tweeted about Trump was when he was banning TikTok in the context of ban. I, I, Trump Twitter is like, I've muted that word a long time Isn't ago. Isn't it so great that he's not on social media anymore just for being able to talk about other topics? Yeah, it definitely gives like air to breathe. Like I was thinking with it, I was kind of wondering why that GameStop story bro- like blew up so much. And I think yes. it was just like one of the first like post-Trump. 100%. It was, there was oxygen in the room. If he saw that, he would have said something crazy that day. He would have like tried to shut down Robin Hood or something. Like yes. he would have just in, made it about himself. And so, Absolutely. yeah. Robin but, Hood, um, terrible platform. Okay. <laughs> shut it down. In the past, selling your business was a miserable task. Months of negotiation, legal fees, and sometimes you'd have to watch the new owners trash the business that you spent so much time and money building. I have been through this before. Oh my God, I sold Weblogs Inc. to AOL and it was wonderful. And then, oh, years later, they shut down half the blogs, then another 30% of them. And all that's left is Engadget and Autoblog. This is really heartbreaking for me. They did a great job in the beginning and then totally screwed the whole thing up. Oh, I don't want to even talk about it. But now there's a better way, Tiny. And I had Tiny's co-founder, Andrew Wilkinson, on episode 1174 back in February because he's a baller. He, he's this incredible entrepreneur. And he described his new Warren Buffett-like approach to acquisitions. Andrew and his team started Tiny to become the buyer they wish they could have sold to. Fair, fast, and founder-friendly. 
If you're looking for a new home for your internet business, they'll respond in a day or two, make an offer within seven days, and close a straightforward deal in about 30 days, which is unbelievable. So here's a call to action. Tiny partners with founders to give them quick, straightforward exits that protect their team and their culture. Get in touch with tinycapital.com slash this week, and they'll let you know within a couple of days. That's tinycapital, T-I-N-Y, capital.com slash this week. All right, thanks, Tiny Capital. Let's get back to this amazing episode. Let's go into the TikTok thing, because I think that's also very interesting. You and I had, I think, divergent opinions of this. I am... Oh, the um, Yeah, I think we did, but we'll find out right now, because <laughs> I, you know, think that the it's insane that America allows a Chinese company to track Americans and operate in our market when Twitter, Substack, the New York Times, Facebook, Instagram are not allowed in their country. And for good reason, because if it was allowed in their country, they would use it to jail journalists, torture Uyghurs, and, and whatnot. So what's your argument? I know you're a big fan of the platform itself, but do you have any concerns <laughs> about a Chinese company operating here in the United States when we don't get to operate there? I mean, of course, I think like yeah. any reasonable person would. I, I My feeling is that um, I don't think it was applied consistently. Like, let's look at some of the other, you know, influences of, of Chinese money and Chinese stuff. I, I think that like, if you're going to look, uh, yeah, I, I mean, Kevin Roos, my colleague, wrote a good piece on this that kind of like broke down all of these other investments, especially around gaming and just like other ways that China has its hands in our tech market. Clearly, they have a huge influence in Silicon Valley in a big way. I, I think if you're going to look at getting their, like, you know, limiting their power in terms of tech, it's not just banning TikTok, it's truly limiting their power in terms of tech. Like, let's stop taking all these Chinese investments. Let's like, you know, I don't know. Just yeah, I mean, we banned Huawei. Huawei's not allowed here. I think mm -hmm. when something hits scale, it's a lot different than when something's sort of bubbling up on the fringes. And, and that's true for China as well. When something bubbles up on the fringes there, they don't ban it until it starts hitting some critical mass. But India yeah. kicked them out. And I mean, you are correct. Um, I mean, I think India, they banned like, 60 of them uh yeah india, india has a whole separate ecosystem but i mean they're smart <laughs> i mean why, why would you even allow a communist country to operate in your borders and then the influence they could have are you concerned at all with i mean tiktok obviously i think you're a huge fan of it it's safe to say and the creativity behind it i think well i wouldn't say fan of any I, well i'm a fan i i guess i'm i'm a fan of like most social technology platforms yeah. i i like I like seeing how they kind of affect, especially like the creator world. So I like mm -hmm. seeing, I, I do think, to, you know, there was this idea that like consumer tech was kind of dead, like the social, mm -hmm. no one was really interested in the social space. And I do think it like put all of these people on notice and like encouraged a lot of innovation, um, which has been so interesting, especially as a journalist to cover. So yeah. I mean, it's also a well-designed app. Let's be honest. Oh, amazing product. It's really I mean, amazing well, product. it's crisp, et cetera. Yeah. Do you, are you concerned about the algorithm? In that it seems to, and I think you may have actually reported on this, it seems to favor, let's just say, white women who are young, who are wearing less clothes, and, you know, maybe the, the fairness of that or also the impact that might have on young women uh, oh, yeah, in completely. terms of aspiring to maybe, I mean, the, the most cynical take on it I heard was that the Chinese were actually trying to devolve our society. I mean, I think that's really... <laughs> 
think I mean, there's a I, lot I, of other ways to devolve our society. Aside well, you from change TikTok. the end of our movies, right? I mean, they're, they're basically <laughs> you can change the end of superhero. You can't have a Chinese villain anymore in a movie, you know, since they banned a number of actors from, you know, having their movies. I think. Um, I didn't know that. Or, That's interesting. Now, yeah, I know they, they banned, have like a lot um, of outside influence on entertainment. Basically, if you want their money, I think Harrison Ford, uh, Richard Gere, um, and there's one other actor, I think because he did uh, Seven Years in Tibet. Basically, they just banned actors and their yeah. movies. And, you know, it used to be Brad Pitt's band. Yeah. Um, you, you used to be able to have a Chinese villain in a movie and that, you know, which was the subject of one of the James Bond films and not since they started funding our films. Have we been able to, so they're literally the most woke group of people, Hollywood. I wouldn't call most, Hollywood woke. <laughs> I, I mean, people are crazy. <laughs> well, I mean, they certainly virtue signal a lot. I don't know if in their actions, if they're woke, because they will sell out to anybody for money. Yeah, that's like, I feel like Hollywood. I mean, I don't work in Hollywood, but my impression of Hollywood has always been like money above all else. Theoretically woke. And they will do anything for money is would be yeah. my take on it. <laughs> Speaking of money, you're well paid. Uh, and Probably not as well paid as people think. I always tell people like journalists, your your no position one gets pays, into media for the yeah. money. Unless your position, you're like a cable news host. Your position yeah. pays 100 to 150 a year, which is, which is very well paid. Um, <laughs> but there was a report Substack offered you 300,000. Uh, putting aside whether you want to confirm that or not. Did you consider it? Because you were talking before about, you know, hey, it's a free market and it's a lot of freedom. And let's face it, you built up quite an audience. I think you would thrive. So um, well, is the, what was your me, thinking on it? Let yeah. me, yeah, let me share my thinking on that. And I, again, cannot, definitely cannot confirm like salary stuff or anything, but, um, of course not. you know, I, I've gotten a lot of offers um, over the years for, for different things and especially to go independent. I tried to launch a whole media company in 2015 on my own. Most of my career has been spent on the business side and in strategy. Um, and I think having that experience has made me like not, I mean, I was full-time. I, I started my own consulting company kind of for a year and a half. And like, um, I, I wouldn't do it again only because I... I kind of sacrificed a lot to become a writer. <laughs> mm. And I know I kind of like emotionally accepted that I'm going to make a significant amount less than I would in other things because I feel like it's what I love to do. And I think long term, it'll pay off. Um, I guess my feeling with going independent is covering the creator economy and, and having a lot of friends who are YouTubers, you know, independent media people. Like it's so much work. It's so much work. It's so much work. And my job mm. now, it's work, but it's not like, running your own business work, you know, it's not like staring at the ceiling at 3am work, wondering if you're going to make payroll. Exactly. You and file and you can then go have a drink or go do Pilates or Netflix and chill or whatever you want to do without grinding your teeth to your gums. You have the security <laughs> I mean, yeah. you have the security. And I, I don't know if I'm entrepreneurial enough entrepreneurial enough. Um, but I respect everyone that does it. I, I just like, I feel like I'm also learning. Um, like Jason, I have not, I've been a full-time report, reporter for not as long. I've been You're definitely on learning on the job. That's for sure. <laughs> well, you <laughs> to know. be charitable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But like, I, I value You're that experience. stepped in it a couple of times. Yeah. I value that experience. Like yeah. I value that. And I, I don't know that I would get the same stuff um, as, a, as a the, So, But okay. So w under what, circumstance would you would 
Is it just a matter of they didn't make you a big enough offer or is it no, that the Andreessen Horowitz connection is just too toxic for you? No, no, no. Um, it's it's more, I mean, look, um, you know, uh, when you think about this, uh, the offers, right, it's only for a year. So they're giving you upfront money for a year, even if that's hundreds of thousands of dollars. I, I'm a reporter, so I'm a news reporter. I travel a lot. There's a lot of mm. reporting costs, especially legal. I mean, everyone wants to sue everyone on what I cover. So I feel like for me, um, ultimately, I'd have to pay an outside editor. Paying an outside editor, covering all of my own travel expenses, reporting expenses, like taxes, having it, it's just a lot that ends up not being like totally worth it, especially because it's only for a year, you know, then you're on your own. And, and I've been on my own. I've had to chase people down yeah, for invoices. Yeah, but I mean, what is Matthew, um, what's his last name? Uh, his, his deal, yeah, his terms came out and man, I mean, but he, uh, I know he, the thing is like people on Twitter, I think my, my journal, like my writing is much more like reporting than it mm. is like opinion. Like somebody like Charlie Warzel, of course it makes sense for him to do that. Um, yeah. For me, like I love breaking news. Like I love getting scoops. I love, you know, I love that part of it. And um, so I, yeah, I think if I was going to leave, like if I was like, look, I'm just going to sell out. I'm just going to do whatever makes me the most money. I would go back to working in advertising. Um mm. Did you enjoy that advertising? Uh, I did. I like the creativity of it. Yeah. Um, I did. But, you know, working on brand stuff is never as interesting as, as reporting. I love journalism. And I this beat is a beat that I've worked to make a beat. Um, so I wouldn't give that up. Let, let's talk a little bit about uh, doxing and just the full contact nature of Twitter, uh, which both <laughs> you and I experience on a regular basis. You're a woman, so it's slightly different. You're going to get it 10 times harder than I would. Um, but y you've been very vocal on Twitter and, you know, sometimes you, you might make a mistake. I might make a mistake, but y you've been outright harassed and, uh, you, you seem to mix it up continually. H have you thought about changing up your Twitter strategy or have you? I don't have a Twitter strategy. I'm myself. I mean, Jason, I got into this world because I had an audience online. That's what got right. me into media was being popular online. So right. I think like. I have always been myself online. I'm definitely very, I'm a lot more careful than I think people realize. Like there's things that I don't talk about anything to do with niche politics. Like you'll never see me tweeting about the mayoral race in New York or whether kids should go back to school. Like hmm. there's just stuff that I'm like, I'm not weighing in on that. That's crazy. If it's on my beat, I'll tweet about it. Um, I think what people, but I mean, you'll call I, people out and you'll, yeah, you know, name names. So you're, you're, you're like, you yeah, know, you'll, you'll throw I a mean, couple of elbows. Uh, Look, I, I definitely that's coming from me. So respect. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it's Twitter. Like, I, I definitely try to be careful. And I try to give people the benefit of the mm. doubt. Um, I will say that that something it's there's something about the New York Times that people don't because I've always been me on Twitter. I've never known I, I will say the, you know, which you're very much part of like, you know, I never knew this like tech Twitter, like I, I was kind of I thought I was in tech Twitter, but I wasn't I was in like YouTube or Twitter. And there's mm. this like, cohort of like Silicon Valley people that I think like, like, uh, suddenly like found me last year. And that's been like annoying to deal with. And I'm, I'm trying well, to Well, you're navigate. pretty quick to be like VCs, white Twitter, blah, blah, blah. These we well, VCs stole besties. I will say VCs, although I have stopped we stole VCs. besties. It was a joke. 
I we can't. That you stole besties. You were you you said. Uh, oh, I said these. it's over because you guys are saying it, but you guys are saying it in a tongue-in-cheek way. Clearly, I, I was know, just joking around. That was Rebecca. I, I take it as a joke. Too. I take it as a joke. Yeah, but you also, are like, super vocal. What are the your New York Times contemporaries thinking about? I had Cade Metz on the program, and he's kind of old school. You know, two generations above you. I, I'm, I'm taking it you're a millennial. Yeah. He's like, uh, you know, he's closer to Boomer than Gen X, I would think. H- how does, what's the vibe in terms of this new generation that I'll just say is outspoken, woke, you know, maybe, you know, has a, a strong belief system versus kind of old school that kind of maybe doesn't even want to engage on Twitter? What, what's, what's, do they, are they annoyed by you? Are they inspired by you do you get into it with them i'm curious at that because the new york times seems to be going through a big change for people who were subscribers to it and felt it was more centrist and now it's more on the left yeah it's so funny to hear people's um perceptions of the new york times because i think it totally depends like also what industry you're talking about um i i mean i came there because i love their culture coverage and i think when you talk about like I, I do too. The culture, it's great. I mean, like John Caramonica is, is incredible. I always love the style section. and Yeah, which is I've why I, are, I yeah. write for the style section yeah. for a reason. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I would say like, I, I don't, I, I think like, I, I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't like that kind of like woke thing. Like, I don't really like like fighting over those designations, especially on Twitter. Like, I just feel like Twitter is not a good place to have conversations. I really like following and engaging um with people that I, that I don't agree with because I like to kind of like get their thoughts on things. Um, yeah. But, um, but I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't say that there's like a generational difference. Cause I think older school journalists definitely are extremely opinionated. I don't think they're like less opinionated than young well, people. Well, What I'll say is just having grown up a New Yorker and, you know, known and, and hung out with the New York times writers in the nineties, the Saul Hansels of the world. Uh-huh. Even met Jason Blair when he first started working there, like oh met God. him his first week because I was doing Silicon Alley Reporter. His first beat was Silicon Alley. That was a whole other story. Yeah. I remember he called me. He's like, I'm going to get you great coverage in the New York Times if you get me exclusives. I was like, that's not how journalism works, oh Jason God. Blair. It was really weird. Um, <laughs> he was I mean, pretty dopey. was a yeah. different landscape. I will say I love hearing stories about it. Like yeah. I love hearing stories, especially early tech 90s too. Like, I feel like it's it was incredible. Era. Yeah, incredible. I was on the cover of the business section in 96, 97, when I was 25, 26. And, you know, the the nice part about it back then was all tech coverage. I think this is why there's like a a little bit of this sort of late stage journalism versus, you know, tech scaled tech is that back then we were underdogs in tech. And everything we made was kind of cool and subversive and underground. I had a zine, we were making websites, and there really was no money in the game. You were yeah. kind of like, th- th- there was there was really wasn't a financial incentive until maybe the late 90s. And it was more like New York underground. So my first gig was writing for Paper Magazine. And I, I was writing about CD-ROMs and online services like dial-up services. Yeah. And just culture like yourself I- in that sort of uh, area. And then as it evolved, you know, now I think Zuckerberg was the key tipping point because Zuckerberg was just such a marauding capitalist who didn't care where the chips fell didn't care where you know he just cared about growth and you know move fast break shit who cares and once that happened i think the press just was like you know what we have to hold these people accountable so we went from a very when i was a journalist i was friends with all the subjects and we all just hung out together and yeah you know sometimes they didn't like the coverage but generally 
it, it was this feeling that there was a really cool revolution going on. And now it feels so adversarial that when I pick up the New York Times or a New York Times journalist calls me, um, I'm just like, okay, this is a negative spin. Like almost all the coverage <laughs> is negative. And I, it's just I would say like, I don't like being included in those narratives because Jason, you know what I cover? I cover tech from the user side. I yeah. write about creators. You know, I, I admire the work that my colleagues do, but I also, um, I kind of feel like a lot of people drag me into narratives because I work at the New York Times and I feel like actually they, they don't read my coverage. Like even when Balaji was like in Clubhouse last year and asked to name one story he had a problem with, he couldn't like, it's kind of like, I feel like the vibe is like, they don't like me for whatever reason. And I'm this avatar of something they don't like. And instead of just going after my colleagues, which not to say that they should, but it's like, they kind of, it's like, I'm this like, I'm a more visible person than a lot of them. So it's like, you're, I full, get, you're, you're out there mixing yeah. it up. Whereas other journalists are just like, you know, they, they don't even post their own stories. Like they wait yeah. for somebody else to post a story. Maybe yeah. they like it. I think what you're experiencing is probably a level of disappointment from the tech industry and they feel the coverage is unfair. And I talked to, to Kate about this on the program, just, you know, treat us more fairly. And I stopped talking to journalists on the phone because I was like, well, I have more listeners than you have readers. Therefore, why wouldn't I just put it on all in podcast or this podcast? But Jason, this is something that I know better than anyone because I cover YouTubers. And as any YouTuber will tell you, they're not giving, why would they give you a call for anything? They'll put it on their YouTube channel and monetize it. Exactly. Like, I mean, totally. That is the world that I operate in. I don't expect anyone to like, I've been in that world for over a decade. So like, I, I just think like, this whole like, I, I just don't like being like caught up into these like narratives about like the Silicon Valley stuff. Although I have done it to myself a little bit because I do like to get into drama with those people. But like, I, I drama also, equals ratings. Well, no, I mean, I kind of am getting tired of it. Like I, I kind of have cooled off on it only because I'm like, these people are ultimately like not that relevant to my beat. And I don't think they like actually care about the stuff that I care about. I love technology. The reason I write about this stuff is because I'm so obsessed with it. I, you know, I, the creator stuff is something that like, I have been a believer in since the beginning, like that industry. I'm so fascinated with that whole shift and shift in media. I wanted to be a media reporter. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the pod. And I was like, you know, I feel like it's gotten so um, I feel like, you know, especially with the Andreessen Horowitz targeting media companies, the whole thing has become so toxic. And there's probably 60 70% we agree on. And to be able to talk about that is actually kind of interesting, right? Like to be able to talk to you about 20 subjects like we did today, it's actually kind of interesting and good content. And like, everybody's like, oh, well, if you have on the podcast, you got to talk about the seven times you disagreed. And I'm like, well, honestly, <laughs> don't actually remember them. And I think when the, I blame a lot of this, you know, I, I feel like the Zuckerberg and then the Trump presidency put everybody on tilt. Yeah, Zuckerberg made our industry look like marauding people who just don't care. Then you add to it the Trump presidency, which made a lot of us feel, you know, like disempowered that we could make any change and that, you know, there's just this maniac running the country. So then everybody's just fighting with everybody. Um, yeah, it's really toxic. I will say also just like, and I don't like to talk about Andreessen at all, because like, whatever, I really yeah. don't have beef with I mean, I have very close friends at work there who I love. Um, oh, really? Yeah. That's fascinating. I didn't before. expect that. Yeah, you've been, I mean, you've I was been, supposed been, to be on oh. their podcast before. Really? But, um, yeah. Okay. But, That's but, interesting. Um, 
you know, I, I will say like it and same with Substack, you know, I, I know that Substack has gotten themselves into controversy because of some of those people they gave to advances to. I, I You do mean right wing people. They've given Glenn well, Greenwald. I don't even know if Glenn is like I don't know what he is anymore, but people that are controversial. No, yeah, I, Glenn is weird. He's, I he's I super cannot. far left, gay guy. He's left, but he's like on Tucker every day. I, I don't. Yeah, he's like one I of those people I cannot understand his politics. He's I think it's straight. libertarian. I think it's like no, super liberal libertarian. Don't like he wants less don't government. Don't put him right? with the libertarian people. The libertarian people are like I think they're actually pretty morally consistent. Like the libertarian mm. people, at least that I know, and I have a, very, a lot of good friends that work for Reason. Um, you know, they have a, they have a moral consistency, and whether or not you agree with it, I think certain libertarians, especially on Twitter, are actually consistent. I have no idea what Glenn is on about. Like he he's very confusing, but um, so I I don't know. I I mm. but I just I, I you know I it does seem like, like Substack did get. Um, who was the New York Times columnist, also Charlie? gay and conservative? Andrew Sullivan. Oh, Andrew's at New York Mag. No, he left for Substack. He, they, he was oh, making yeah, yeah. people he left uns- at Substack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He right. made people feel unsafe at New York Magazine, and they they wrote him out of there. Same thing with Barry Wise. So it does seem like Substack. Well, those, qu- those people quit. I mean, which I don't blame them for quitting. If I was an opinion columnist, hello, of course you can make more money if you have a good audience doing but it. But they, on they your felt own. like they were being targeted inside their own publications um andrew specifically said like people did not want him at new york magazine and were lobbying uh, to get him out same thing with barry weiss but you know listen it's inside baseball and i mean and, uh, i i think like if you feel that way then then start your own thing right like i, I think like i, I don't it would know. just be nice if the new york times opinion page or you know back in the day you know just predates you and being a journalist but there was this kind of a concept that Republicans, Democrats, conservatives, straight people, gay people, whatever. And it was really like a New York thing when I grew up in New York and spent my first 32 years there, where you kind of engaged with people who you fervently disagreed with, had a great debate, great conversation, had beers, had a burger, went down to pastis, you know, or whatever, you know, and the Odeon. And you just had a good time chopping it up. And now it's kind of like, I can't be friends with you. We can't be in the same building. I feel unsafe. Do you think people are just being a little too snowflakey? No. In, the, in your I mean, generation? Look, uh, no. I think that- I feel um, like you guys are all snowflakes. I'll be totally <laughs> <honest>. <laughs> Everyone likes to say that about millennials. I, I mean, I, I would say what, what for me marked a big change was kind of the rise of this Trump like mindset where it is very like antagonistic and like having Trolling. I mean I covered the 2016 election and I worked in you know running social for a political news site for two years and like I just saw that that transformation and hostility that mm. that came um and and I relentless think that's, owning the libs became like a relentless pursuit yeah and it's just really and it's also like making a lot of bad faith arguments like I said I think like I'm perfectly happy to hear libertarian arguments for things whether or not I agree with them. But I think like there's certain people that just make a lot of like bad faith attacks. And so that's, mm. that's, I think the unfortunate thing. Um, and, and of course Twitter rewards that. So, you know, we do live in a bad sort of communication did, system too. Did Ellen get canceled today or yesterday? Or do you think she just was tired of dealing with <laughs> this nonsense? I was trying to figure it out. And I was like, if, if they, if they canceled Ellen, that feels like, Cancel she inception. Well, she kind of like, it's funny because I, I like totally didn't even realize she was still on whenever somebody did that thread on, on bad, like workplace management or whatever. Yeah. Like 
I, I think like she's so rich and successful. Like she doesn't have to deal with any of this anymore if she wants to not do it. Like I, I don't really know what happened. Um, I, I do think people like were making it clear that like her behavior was unacceptable, but I think she she was just that she delegated right show anymore yeah it felt like also yeah. she delegated like I, it doesn't seem like she was on top of what was happening in the office she just came in did the comedy and yeah, left i i don't know i think it's like with those situations and i don't know a ton about shows but i was reading a lot of stuff about like scott rudin and stuff too it's like also there's a shift in what's acceptable and what's socially acceptable yes. and i think definitely like when i was starting out you know i had bosses yell at me i had a boss throw something at me like and that actually didn't even seem crazy whereas now i it, i could tweet yes. that out and that that's unacceptable but i made I think, people cry in the 90s when i was an editor well, I think but I that, didn't do it on purpose, but I, I would make people read their copy out loud ooh. in the editorial meeting. Yeah. Only if they f***ed up. I would be like, <laughs> oh, you should read your column out loud. It's a room for 20 people. And oh, they would God. read it out loud and it'd be spelling errors. Oh, God. I mean, I make a lot of spelling errors. I, then, um, or, but I mean, back then it would get in the magazine. and then I, Or if oh. they did something, I'd be like, okay, you know, they put facts in there that are wrong. I'm like, these are wrong facts. Like, did you check this? Where'd you get this from? And they'd be like, ah, uh, uh, and I'd like, get out. Just kick them out of the I think editorial a, I meeting. Mean, but there's an, I mean, that's, I think, different than, like, probably what, like, Alan was yeah. doing. I think there's, like, a level of accountability and also just yeah. saying, like, these these work environments have been really racist and sexist and, like, it's kind of yeah, not Yeah, that's cool. gnarly. And that guy Scott Rudin yes. seemed, like, truly deranged. He, like, yeah. threw things yeah. at people. Yeah. There's a really good movie, um, which I knew the kid who was in, Kevin Whaley. I used to play basketball with him. I think it's Kevin Whaley. Um, called Swimming with Sharks. Um, you have to see this movie. Ooh, I'm gonna watch it. Swimming with sharks. It's basically, paradoxically, ironically, Kevin Spacey and Kevin Whelan. This kid Kevin comes in and he's an assistant. And in Hollywood, the assistants are known for being absolutely demolished, degraded, having things thrown at them. Yeah. And this movie became oh Frank Whaley. Yeah. Um, really nice kid uh, who I used to play basketball with. I mean, you want to talk about like the cool '90s that you missed. He used to play basketball at the Chelsea Piers with Diddy, DJ Clue, Queen Latifah, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, the kid who owned Butter. Like this was like the 90s. Oh Hip hop culture, God. celebrities, artists, writers, and magazines were like the whole, and tech. That was like David Mays from the source. Like that was like the the, the nature of it. And it was just kind of cool. But Swimming with Sharks is oh, I gotta watch pretty it. epic dark it's really dark Ooh. uh all right what did we miss did we miss anything today we didn't anything? discuss elon oh he did a great job <laughs> i know i i was it was really interesting to watch there was so much discussion about it i had to watch it on some like bootleg dogecoin stream that was like losing my uh, mind well uh, uh yeah i i was there so I, I didn't get to watch the twitter following because when you're in the yeah, theater they they don't let you take but i was in the green room for a lot of it so i did get to see the the early stuff what were your thoughts i heard i had heard from friends that worked on snl that there was a vc with elon and i was like who's the vc and i was like you got to find out who it is i got to put this Who's person me? on blast yeah, yeah and then i saw that you tweeted the picture and i was like oh my god i think it was jason <laughs> well i mean elon and i are very close friends and he asked me to come with him and <laughs> i was i'm a writer obviously and i'm Arguably, oh, you totally. funniest the friend. And so. with, I mean, that's but I spent cool the whole experience. week there, so I think that they were. But you know, Elon was busy; he needed some help, just you know, evaluating the scripts or what he wanted to do. But I, <laughs> I thought it was great. I, I, I basically wrote the um, Asperger's joke, where um, I came up with the Asperger's idea, and then Colin, I think, wrote 
the joke and I, the first part of the joke and I wrote the second part, which was there won't be a lot of eye contact. <laughs> and it's not that I'm looking at the cue cards. Um, so I was pretty happy about that. I think it touched a lot of people. Oh, there were people who literally, Taylor, uh, were crying um, after the show. You know, people who had sons and because, um, you know, it yeah. seems like it's one out of 20 boys and one out of two or 300 girls um, uh, have it. And um, it was literally somebody came back and gave me a hug and uh, gave Elon a hug and she was crying. And, and one of the, I think she worked in, well, I won't say where she worked, but uh, one of the folks who just had a son who had been bullied for having Asperger's. Oh, and wow. It was like super meaningful to her that Elon admitted it. Like I was just like, is this a newsflash that he's got Asperger's? But okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, well, I don't know if you talked about it before, but yeah. He never talked about it publicly, but like yeah. half my friends have it. I mean, like, Sachs is kind of on the spectrum. Friedberg's kind of on the spectrum. Zuck is clearly on the spectrum, but they're kind of yeah. cruel to Zuck on on the show, you know, in terms of his Asperger's, I thought, like, you know, making him into a robotic person. But I guess he, yeah. as a public figure, he yeah. is kind of crazy when he gets up there and he's like, yes, Congresswoman, thank you for the question, Congressman. That's a great question. <laughs> you're like, yeah. wow, yeah. he's just super robotic. Um, all right, well, listen, Taylor, it's great to have you on the pod. Continued success. I'll see you, you online. Thank you for having me. Great chatting. Yeah, it was great chatting, actually. I hope, hopefully we can do it again. Maybe you and I will do a clubhouse room together and we'll just melt the servers over there. <laughs> I <laughs> we never do go in there. I am going on Josh Constein. I'll go on for Josh and stuff. I'll do I that. haven't been on clubhouse. I opened the app up the other night and it was just like. It's so bad now. It's, it's so the bad. content is so gnarly. It's and then like so you go into. I, I did like the shoot your shot. I thought that was hilarious. Yeah. The NYU girl shoot your shot. I, that to me is just got unlimited upside. Like that's got to be a TV show, right? It's that's so, yeah. They, well, they signed with WME. Um, For so. sure, it's got to be. Yeah, but it's like those are the people that should be on the suggested user. Of list. course, like who wants to like follow Mark and Dreesen? Like this. I also think it's kind of weak sauce that like the the venture capital firm has to prop up the platform. And so after that happened, I literally had a startup go, we'll think about letting you into the round, but we want you to do show us five things you can do to promote our product before we let you on the cap table. And I was like, yeah, I'm Jason Caliganis. No, bye. <laughs> like, are you fucking crazy? Like, I, I'm going to start promoting your product and like right. help it. I'm not even on the cap table. Like I got 250 companies I got to help. Like I'm not going to jump through hoops. No, but no. it's like now started this whole thing of like, who can bring the reason in Treason one was the deal was because they brought more celebrities than Benchmark. Yeah, I know. I know. Was, which is super. I think wise. it's so stupid. I mean, it's I will dumb say strategy. You know. It's just a bad strategy. But I mean, there's there's people like I mean, I would say Substack. Like Substack is like, yes, they took Andreessen money, but they're not like making it their whole brand. You know, like not at all. It's like so none of their I brand. Think I, that's fine. It's like yeah. Clubhouse like took that money and then like made that their brand, and it's like. Okay, you're, I mean, I don't know if that's necessarily a winning strategy, but. It's not because you really don't want to, I mean, it's fine to do it like once in a while, but the fact that they started doing like a show every night about tech and then, you know, I was like, well, what happens when they get bored with that? And then the whole platform collapses and you, you, like you're saying, who's the next uh, king batch? Am I pronouncing Like, I met King Batch, to, to talk about how crazy Twitter screwed up Vine, I met King Batch at uh, Art Basel many years ago, and he was the number one guy on um, 
Vine. And I said, who do you know at Twitter? Um, like, um, you know, how are they working with you? It's like, I've never met anybody who worked for Twitter. Yeah. That was the straight state of the creator economy seven, eight years it's ago. St- that was the state of the creator economy two years ago. Um, yeah. It's well, kind of yeah. yeah. I mean, I Instagram was- doesn't share money either. I think this is what yeah. Twitter is going to really do. They're like rock. I don't know how you feel about Twitter's recent innovations, but how I think do you it's feel so about great. all this? Oh my God, they're totally like back on a roll. First of all, they're finally allowing people to monetize. That's the been the whole Brilliant. thing with Twitter for so long. It's amazing. And I love Esther, the, um, per, you know, the product person. I, and Kayvon? I uh, she I was, she started Squad. Oh yeah. yeah. Kayvon is also helping. They just I, I was like, else too, they just, yeah. the fact that like I opened it up the other day and they're like, accept tips. I was like, sure, I'll donate tips to charity, whatever. And I shut yeah. my Patreon down because I was like, well, Apple and Spotify are going to let me do an ad-free version. And what, what I, I got to maintain and my whole other presence over at, you know, Patreon. And then it's just so much easier to do it all on Twitter. And they bought that uh, review. So I think it's going to be I think pretty it's great. neat. Yeah, I think it's really cool. And I can't wait to see kind of like also who's able to really effectively monetize. Obviously, also that they allow nudes and like a lot of sex workers make money on Twitter. So... I think that is weird too. Like sometimes in my feed, you know, like you search for something and it's like, has nothing to do with adult content. And <laughs> yeah. you're like, oh, okay, whoa. <laughs> you're like scrolling past it really fast. I'm like, okay. <laughs> that used to happen <laughs> on Tumblr too. How much do you I will say something though, like kind of just on that topic of like VCs and, and media and stuff. Like I do think it's a good thing. Like I really do like Anderson's content. So, like I do think it's a good thing that more of these media companies are like posting their own content. Um, mm-hmm. Because I think it's really one interesting, probably for people to read. And also like, that's the, the journalism space has been so contracted. And like, you know, there's a lot of startups that reach out and they like want somebody to cover their funding round. And I'm like, like, sorry, I can't cover it. Like, nope. I don't, and I don't know who to send you to maybe TechCrunch or something, but it's like, but should they write their own blog post? Of course, like, that's an interesting story and you want to have yep. it out there. So I think it's great, you know, and, and I, you know, the Andreessen podcast is interesting and like, it's great for people to create content like that. I, 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 mean, I don't think I'm, it's like this coming is, for media. I think this is like episode 1200 of this podcast yeah. or so. And it's like, I've been doing this for 11 years. It makes millions of dollars a year. I have six or seven people on it. And I just stopped talking to journalists like business insiders doing this big profile. I mean, I was like, you can email me questions. I'll answer them. But they're like, no, we need to talk to you on the phone. I was like, just listen to all it, 32 episodes of all in 1200 episodes of this week's startups. <laughs> this is what like, every YouTuber tells me. Go back I'm like, and watch my what, content. What, what didn't I say? You know, like just, yeah. li- I mean, or like, and why would I, why, why would I participate if you're going to like put a link baiting headline on it? Um, well, I don't know if it's not participate. I mean, uh, people interpret participate or not participate. I just think it's like, it, it's, it's helpful. And, and then there's not as much media resources. And for the promotional stuff, Hmm. honestly it's better that a journalist isn't telling that you should tell your own story right like 100%, you should get yeah. out there and especially if you're a startup or you have a fundraising route like do a I podcast don't, i don't i don't think it's like it's easy disturbing like you said you've had this podcast for so long that doesn't mean that it's people wouldn't subscribe to another tech podcast like i think no. people have a There's lot of always new ones coming out and i feel like yeah. podcasting is just getting started you don't do podcasting I had a podcast, RIP, it's rated of one star in iTunes. I had a podcast for a while on uh, uh, YouTube creators, but it was like four uh, years ago. It was, uh, early, it was too early. Yeah. You, um, I could see you doing it well if you had a good collaborator to bounce off of. So you had somebody reading the news and then you commenting, like, you know, where you could bounce off of a straight newsreader and then give your opinion. But that's the problem with being a New York Times reporter. It's like every time I interview a New York Times reporter as opposed to an editorial page person, like if I interview Kara Swisher, 
she can have opinions. Oh, Kara has a lot of opinions. But you can't. <laughs> you you got to keep it. Uh, well, you know, Dan, Dan Premack is a reporter. And I think his podcast is, I mean, it's more of a news podcast, though. But yeah, it's just yeah. hard to, you know, for people to reconcile. But, you know, people have their choice. I think the editorial page and the news reporting at the New York Times or Wall Street Journal, they should really figure out a way to educate the public who doesn't understand that these are two different things. A lot of yeah, people read the editorial page and they think, well, that's reporting. And they, they're, therefore, you know, whatever, they're right wing, they're left wing. They got to just put it in a different font in a totally different space and just make it very clear. These are opinions. Like what a about giant Forbes contributor, Jason? What about oh, the fuck Forbes those contribu- guys? I oh, can't take them. In Forbes. A fortune, no, fortune under 30. It's like uh, it was yeah. written by like a recruiter who's trying to get or a PR <laughs> person wrote it. I'm just. That's why we don't take any PR pitches. We don't do any press. Same, I don't write anything based off a pitch. I've never written this. I will never write a story. Like, I just think there's bad stories. Like, by definition, if you're with, by definition, like the PR person is telling you, uh, uh, the founder had to get the PR person because their story was so weak and uninteresting that the PR person is trying to pump it up. And it's like, that's a really bad idea. That's like somebody with bad pizza, like giving you pieces on the street, like, here, try this also, pizza. I have like, so much more respect for a founder that puts out their own blog post. Say you hire like a yeah. writer to write a blog post and it's on your site, then somebody sending me a bad written Forbes contributor post about them. It's like, that's so embarrassing for you. you so embarrassing. Like, just so write thirsty. it on your own. I would love to read it. Maybe I'll take a look, but yeah. like, I'm not going to take read a stand. Forbes. Oh, hey, what? You, I, this is a good thing to close on. What did you think uh, of the base camp implosion slash. <laughs> You know, like the most woke company having like this civil war internally. Well, first of all, I think anytime you lose a third of your staff is bad management. Like that's bad management. Um, I think that it's like, I mean, I've worked in a lot of places and like I've worked a lot of, um, you know, food service jobs, retail jobs, like where you work with people that you certainly don't align with or have crazy and you're just like, okay, I have to work, you know, this is work. Like, I, I, you know, I, I think like, you know, I work in a newsroom. So of course we discuss like controversial issues, but I do think that there's something to the fact of like, you don't necessarily want your employees to spend a huge amount of time on the company Slack debating things that are not directly related to work, right? Like the problem is like, why would you, why would you communicate that in such a politicized way? Like the way that they communicated it was so Mm. politicized and it was trying to like go, just, it's like, this is something that you should just manage and slowly change the culture. Be like, guys, look, like, I mean, New York times had this, where we had this crazy Slack channel, there was like 2000 people and eventually got shut down. But it's like, this was an unproductive way to communicate is having like, and nobody was like, oh, guys, we're canceling conversation or something, or like, we're banning this. Anytime you tell people that you're banning something, yeah. it's Here causing drama. Yeah, it's massive drama. drama. Just, it's like, I tell people, like, go have, if you want to talk about politics and there's three people who want to do that with you, there's a lunch hour, go, go have lunch. Or you guys could start a Zoom chat and talk about whatever book club you want or whatever. I, the cynic in me, I think they wanted to reduce the headcount after oh all this God, and clean house <laughs> well no i'll tell you why giving six months of severance in a pandemic to people who already are getting paid a fortune like they're a very well-paying company because they're so yeah. profitable so to offer somebody imagine you were getting paid 50 percent more than the average person for your job then they offer you six months it's kind of like getting nine months you're coming out of the pandemic you've been working there for six years it's just like 
I mean, everyone wants to YOLO their job, it seems like. Exactly. So now it's like, okay, yeah, Yeah. fuck it. I got nine months. I'm easily employable. And so I'm out. I just Um, think like you could have, I just think like, yeah, I just think like it's like too, it's like Coinbase too. It's like, guys, just calm down. Just manage your staff well and like set a tone. Like we've all worked in different workplaces where it's very clear the, like the vibe of it. Like, I just think it's like, you want to I also think there's the tension. You no. want to lower the tension. You can't do electronic communications because all empathy is yeah. removed and it becomes just the worst most cynical interpretation of the words. Yeah. And then if there's 2000 or 200 people like okay, six are going to be offended. Now you got three of them decide to reply and now it's chaos. Yeah, it's you have the emoji reaction. It's it's just like you got to like I just I'm managing is hard, but I was yeah. like, oh, God, what is this drama? I love that Casey Newton got some, like, he he had, like, all this drama, like, he was finding out about the company. So I did read the Well, it was, like, such it. a stupid thing, too. It was, like, there were some dopey people who were making a list of funny names. They weren't targeted at any one particular group of people. It was, like, the Simpsons joke where they call the, you know, Mo the bartender, and they're, like, saying somebody's funny name. It's juvenile and stupid. And they should have just used it as a learning experience for the, whatever dopey people did this. Like, okay, this was stupid. Don't do this. Let's all move on and get back to work. Yeah. I mean, I think having lists of funny names is problematic, obviously. And it's like, but that's the thing. But how is, is problematic? Like, is it like you want those well, two people to I lose their jobs know. and be canceled forever? I, I don't know what it was. I think that your job as a manager, though, is to kind of like de-escalate and to kind of make it set boundaries, set it, make right. things clear what's acceptable and not acceptable. And and de-escalate situations, yes. not inflame situations by like making some proclamation, proclamation. And, and having a whole thing. It's like no, and then allowing everyone on Twitter to litigate it. What? That's so. Why are you doing that? No, I mean they're, they. I mean I've had David and 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 Jason Fried on this podcast multiple times, and they're super interesting guys who I don't agree with on everything, but they were super right about a lot. They were right about work from home and you know, employee perks and, you know, freedom and responsibility. And, you know, they, they did have some some right, right ideas, but the cynic in me thinks they wanted to downsize. They were tired of this. And maybe, you know, there are some people who live, you know how it is. There are people who live for this kind of drama. And I think they just like, what's the maximum amount we can offer to get the people who are not into working here anymore out of the building? Yeah. And yeah. just let's, and I think Coinbase did a similar thing. Like, if you really want to talk about this at work, Go start your own Coinbase or Basecamp. Yeah, Coinbase just seemed like toxic. I, and I don't know anything about Coinbase. Like, this is so out of my realm. I only know this from, like, reading a couple well, articles. But my feeling is just, like, all of this stuff. It's, like, just... You ever meet a crypto person? Like, okay. they have a certain worldview. Like, yeah. their worldview is, like, you know, very, very libertarian, extreme, whatever. You know, sometimes chaotic, sometimes anarchist. Like, they're just... yeah. They're, they're a unique breed. And then you put a crypto person with a woke crowd. Like, this is the most explosive combination of individuals, like, since Gen X and or and boomers versus millennials. Like, don't put them in the same <laughs> I room. There's some, like, I, I got a little bit, like, crypto-pilled because I was, like, I wrote this story about NFT horses and I talked to these people and I was, like, actually, this is so interesting. I know nothing about crypto. And yeah. um, I will say, like, obviously, the energy stuff is a huge problem. And I thought it was hilarious what Elon did yesterday. <laughs> oh, God, he broke their hearts. Everyone was so upset. He broke their hearts. That was funny. But it is, like, I mean, I do think, like, clearly like we are moving towards this decentralized system and and that's exciting and cool and and interesting um 
but it does seem to attract like the most. I annoying. love NFTs. I thought that was the f most interesting um, part of crypto. Like I think owning digital assets that are one of one and trading them, like if you get great joy from it, I kind of think that's cool. Yeah. Like, I think that's kind of fun and like unique and interesting. Like it feels kind of Blade Runner. Um, I think yeah. the gaming, I mean, I think like, uh, I mean, what I wrote about with these like horses and stuff, which is this like kind of horse racing game, and it's like having ownership, I play a lot of Fortnite, like if there was some kind of like NFT integration, or like you're, you're you have this kind of like, it, I think, I think like, if you have a stake in the in the game that you're playing, that's kind of interesting. And oh, my God, if you became a Twitch uh gamer. I, have a I have a twitch i do do you play games online on video I sometimes stream yeah oh yeah. my lord so like under like a secret no, account or something game. it used to be do you get like ten thousand people there no watching like you play random group i have a i have a couple of friends that are like big streamers so i'll uh, play with them sometimes but they have huge audiences usually like me going on there but i stream off my channel i know uh, a friend of mine's uh girlfriend is a uh, streamer and she makes a large amount of money playing video games and she's got all these like stands who just love her and they're like are you on only fans and she's like no i'm on twitch i'm not only fans but <laughs> yeah i think you can watch like me play games <laughs> that level i feel like i i would do a twitch i might start streaming more often of like talking like kind of like a podcast thing where you're just like talking about stuff because there's just chatting i don't know if you followed the rise of just chatting during the pandemic no. but that sector of twitch has nothing has grown faster than, than that what is sort that? of sector. Just chatting. Just chatting is basically like people like Hassan, Piker, um, or Ludwig, like these people that like kind of just go on and like talk. They'll usually bring up the news. They'll bring up articles. It's very wow. much like what you do, Jason. Yeah. Um, you know, That's and sort of talk about the news of the day and answer, you know, just chat. And they have interesting people on and kind of debate stuff. And Yeah, they've um, been uh, courting us to put the besties and all in on there. And I was just like, yeah, I just don't want to build your platform. Like, if you could bring something to the table, maybe, but... Well, you guys you know. already have a podcast. I think it's better for, like, more interactive stuff, but... Yeah, I'll yeah. try it. All right, listen, great to have you on the pod. I'll let you Thanks get back to work. Me. I'm sure you got a file, and uh, hopefully uh, we'll get to meet in person someday And when I'm in New York. Or Come something. to L.A. I live in L.A. Oh, you live in L.A.? I didn't realize that. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Well, here. I used to live there. Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll definitely catch up when I'm in L.A. Talk to you soon. All right, Bye. we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.